G'day Sports by Fry fans, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports by Fry podcast coming at you late on a Wednesday evening. Just got done watching a little bit of the Warriors Boston game, watch the last quarter of that to see how the Celtics ground out a W. Big podcast coming at you today, kind of covering a couple of different topics, going to provide a little bit of NBA update, JLo and I will undoubtedly cover all things basketball on Sunday. I am dropping my Super Bowl preview tomorrow. There's every chance now that I'm recording this late Wednesday that you're listening to this on Thursday. So the preview for Super Bowl 55 will be out at some point today. And after digging through the numbers, I'm not so sure about the Kansas City Chiefs anymore. And then finally, right at the end, I did talk about this AFL goals article on the weekend. So I'm going to go through probably four teams, maybe a couple more, and then JLo and I will address a few more on Sunday's pod. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Righto, the opening today is purely NBA-focused, and I want to start with Bradley Beal. We addressed that Bradley Beal uh, could be better suited playing for another team that's not the Washington Wizards, and the Washington Wizards, ironically, then went out and secured a pretty wicked win against Brooklyn. They were down by five points with about 12 seconds left, something of the sorts, and then bang, Bradley Beal three, stole the inbound pass, bang, Russell Westbrook three, and everything's all right in Washington. Or is it? Because if you watch that whole game, Bradley Beal's body language was actually pretty trash. I mean, I can understand why he'd be frustrated. The dude's lost, what, 11 games now and he scored 40 plus points, but he was moping around during timeouts, not looking attentive at all, not really dapping up his teammates, etc. So Bradley Beal seems like a hell of a loyal dude. All reports indicate that he wants to stay in Washington, and he really wants to build a winner with the Wizards. So I actually applaud the bloke for sticking through a lot of the shit times in Washington, but at the end of the day, I don't know if he's going to be able to see it through. Something's going to give sooner or later. Either Bradley Beal's going to request a trade, or Washington has to do something to try and help this poor bloke out. I think the form is more likely to happen, and we did talk about maybe Bradley Beal getting shuffled around and landing on Denver. I really pled the case for the Atlanta Hawks to make a move for him, but after my concerns that I addressed about the Dallas Mavericks and how Kristaps Porzingis looks like a shell of the former bloke that was dominating for the Knicks, I wouldn't blame Dallas for kind of going all in, trading a couple of other future picks and everyone else on their roster not named Luca to get themselves another true star to pair next to Doncic. Probably won't happen this season. It might happen next off-season, but that's a narrative that I'm definitely going to be following closely. As I mentioned, the Wizards got that win over Brooklyn, but the Nets bounced back against the Clippers today with a pretty wicked close win as well, moving them into now second place in the East. So... Everything's all right in Brooklyn. It seems like James Harden's arrived. They're clicking on offense. They're on a historic pace scoring buckets. But on defense, the Nets are pretty, pretty bad. I mean, so bad that they're actually on pace to set a record for the worst defensive rating ever recorded. I can understand why the offensive rating is trending upwards. I don't think there's a team in the NBA averaging under 110 at the moment. For the record, that's not an actual fact. Don't... Let's check that, but baskets are up. It's no surprise that uh, everyone who watches basketball sees that everyone's scoring in the high hundreds or the mid hundreds now anyway. I mean, 
that Brooklyn Washington game was 149 to 145 from memory. So stupid type of box scores. So Brooklyn's got to tighten the screws if they're going to be serious about contending. I know that at the end of the day, if they're scoring 140, as long as the other team doesn't score 141, then everything's rosy. Although I do have some concerns over the Nets. I mean, you've got three closers in Kyrie, Kevin Durant and James Harden and any defense is going to struggle to try and match up with those dudes but I do think that Brooklyn has to do something to address their defensive shortcomings because A, it's not coming from Kyrie, B, it's not coming from James Harden and yeah C, it's probably not coming from Kevin Durant. He got lauded for the defense that he played in Golden State but think about the other dudes that he was playing around in that system. Just because he's long and got his arms to a couple of block shots I don't know if Kevin Durant as your defensive cornerstone really is the answer. And there's probably not a ton out there that Brooklyn can do trade-wise. Obviously, getting James Harden saw them fleece all their picks off to Houston. So, I don't know. It's a pretty tricky situation that Brooklyn finds themselves in. We have said for a couple of weeks now that they're going to be active in the buyout market. So, if they're going to try and fix this historically bad defense, they're going to need someone to plug the gap. That someone could be Andre Drummond. There's reports coming out of Cleveland that the Cavs probably won't keep Andre Drummond past this year's trade deadline. Personally, I don't actually think Drummond would help Brooklyn defensively, but he could help a middling team really take another step up in contention. The aforementioned Dallas Mavericks, would they be someone that tries to consider a move for Drummond? It's a bit of a clunky fit with Porzingis, but... If they really do think that there's enough red flags, maybe they'll want to put Chris Stapps in a potential deal for Andre Drummond. There is some rumours stating that the Cavs will chase a buyout with Drummond. He did opt in to a $28.7 million player option this year. So he's a free agent in the offseason. And actually, in the last game he played against the Timberwolves, Drummond had another 20.20 rebound line, moving him into third all-time for career 2020 games, trailing only Dwight Howard and Moses Malone. So the dude can play. Personally, I think he's the definition of good stats, bad team guy. I mean, no offense, I, I am a Cleveland fan myself, but not exactly setting the world on fire right now. I think they're still technically in the playoffs, but even if they do hold on to a spot, I don't expect them to make too much noise this year. And I don't really need to go into his Detroit Pistons career, do I? So Dallas, maybe they're a team out west that could uh, look at potentially securing Andre Drummond. Personally, I would love to see him on the Warriors. I don't think that that's going to work unless he does get bored out and somehow Steph Curry's got his mobile number and can give him a text. The Toronto Raptors would be an interesting one. Having lost Serge Ibaka and Mark Gasol in the offseason, Chris Boucher's had a little bit of a leap in his production, but there's still some issues with the Raps currently sitting ninth in the East, so maybe they're a team that want to get active in the trade market if they keep hovering around the middle tiers to try and leap back into championship contention. And honestly, don't rule out the Charlotte Hornets. There's a lot of buzz, pun intended, around the Hornets right now. Lamelo got his first start with Terry Rozier out the other day. Devontae Graham starting to hit some shots. Malik Monk hit eight threes in their re most recent outing. So if they could plonk someone like Andre Drummond, again, I don't know if his numbers would translate to more wins for Charlotte, but... I could definitely see how they could talk themselves into a potential Andre Drummond move. As a Cavs fan, I'll happily deal Andre Drummond for a couple of picks and other assets so that we can free Jared Allen 
Paul Buggers had to go from not getting minutes and playing behind DeAndre Jordan in Brooklyn to now being rested behind Andre Drummond. So he's a big name that could be moved throughout the trade deadline period. I don't think Bradley Beal will get dealt this year if I had to uh, make a bet on it, but I'd be very surprised if Andre Drummond finished the year as a Cav. To the Super Bowl we go. Like I said, the Super Bowl preview, by the time you're listening to this, may be out on sportsbyfry.com. If not, it's definitely going out on Thursday. And this matchup is all about both teams' offense. Obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs are a fun factory when it comes to scoring points. Travis Kelsey is a red zone savant, I think. He didn't lead the league in touchdowns this year. That title from memory went to Devontae Adams, but he might be the most lethal guy inside the 20 in the NFL. Doesn't stop there, though, for the Kansas City Chiefs. Tyreek Hill is probably the fastest bloke in the lead, so when you pair them up and you throw in other guys like Sammy Watkins, pass catchers out of the backfield like Darrell Williams and Le'Veon Bell, KC is going to be hard to slow down, but they haven't really clicked and looked like the same team that won the Super Bowl last year. They've only averaged, or they've finished fifth in points per game this year, but the Chiefs do score more on the road than they do at home, for what it's worth. They're currently still favourites in this game, and Patrick Mahomes is a wizard with a ball in hands. He finished second in the NFL for passing yards, first downs, throws of 20-plus yards, and the second-fewest interceptions. And he'll need to hook up with those big weapons regularly if they think that they're going to try and claim back-to-back Super Bowls. The last time these two teams played, I talked a little bit about this on Sunday, but Tyreek Hill absolutely torched Carlton Davis, the Tampa Bay Bucks cornerback. So Chiefs fans will be hoping that they can get Hill in single coverage again, that he can put some more easy receiving yards on the board. From memory, I think he had a 70-plus yard reception that went for a TD. Actually, no, it was stopped just short of the goal against Buffalo. That's right. Memory serves me right. But, yeah, obviously the Chiefs haven't been clicking, like I said, at the same capacity that they were last year. The last time that they played the Bucs, they actually did emerge victorious. And in that game, they also got a little bit of pressure on Tom Brady, forcing him to throw two interceptions and... Kansas City, I've said it for numerous weeks now, I think that their defense is severely underrated. They finished fourth in the entire NFL for interceptions, so I wouldn't be surprised if their secondary would look to be really aggressive on Tom Brady's throws and try and return one to the house. Speaking of Brady, he's like a fine wine. That motherfucker is so unbelievable. He's about to play in his 10th Super Bowl. Just to put this into context, if he wins, he will have seven Super Bowl rings. No other NFL franchise has seven rings. The only reason the New England Patriots have six rings, I'm stuttering over my words now because Tom Brady's that good. The only reason the Pats have six rings, obviously, is because Tom Brady was a Patriot. At 43, it seems like he just keeps getting better. He was once again amongst the league leaders for all the major quarterbacking stats, and he does have a lot of weapons on this Bucks offense that poise a lot of threat to the Kansas City Chiefs. It's been interesting to watch the Bucks go about their business in the last six or seven games. They're on a seven-game winning streak dating back into the regular season, and they've been using a lot of two tight end sets in the last couple of games. And what that means is that they're rolling out two tight ends, potentially one to block and one as a receiving threat. Obviously, casual NFL fans will know about Rob Gronkowski. He came out of retirement and is one of, if not the greatest tight end to ever play, but Cameron Brait has actually had a big step up in production as well. 
First nine or so weeks of the season, he was only targeted 12 times and had less than 100 receiving yards. But since that stretch and when they've started using two tight ends in a lot of different packages, Brates now had 38 targets and recorded nearly 350 receiving yards. So it's also worth noting the Chiefs struggled to defend tight ends as well. I could see a lot of Brady's weapons getting off the chain. Antonio Brown, someone who didn't get to play in their most recent game, but he's caught a touchdown in four of his last five games. Obviously, Mike Evans is kind of like Tampa Bay's version of Travis Kelsey. He's elite in the red zone. Chris Godwin, he's a superstar receiver as well. So there's a lot of weapons for Tom Brady to throw to. Leonard Fournette has kind of had a bit of a renaissance in this playoffs. And Ronald Jones III was easily their best running back throughout the year. So you stack up all those offensive weapons and all of a sudden it looks like Tampa can, if not take it up to the Chiefs, even better them in a shootout type of game. I know I'm going to regret this, but I am sticking to my guns. I'm still picking the Kansas City Chiefs as Super Bowl champs. I think on Sunday... Off the top of my dome, I said the score would be like 33 to 20 something, maybe a close to double digit win for the Chiefs. I'm going back on my word. I think it's going to be much closer now that I've dug into a lot of the numbers. However, like I said, I still think the Chiefs are going to emerge victorious. Final score 35, Kansas City, Tampa Bay 31. As a lot of Sports by Fry footy fans will know, I dropped my most recent article based on one realistic goal for all 18 clubs. This is a piece I've done a couple of years in a row now. Some of them make a lot more sense than others, but I tried to be a little bit versatile with the way I attacked this, okay? I'm going to list off four that I think are really intriguing goals for clubs heading into the new AFL season. First cab off the rank is the Adelaide Crows. I said that their goal in 2021 is to keep Rory Laird in the midfield. Even in shortened quarters, this is crazy by the way, Rory Laird averaged 27 touches and five clearances in Adelaide's last seven matches. So if you translate that over to 20 minute quarters, I think Laird would be averaging close to 35 a game and nearly seven or eight clearances, which is absurd to think. I know now there's a big gaping hole in their midfield with Brad Crouch departing for St Kilda. They might want to throw a bit of an opportunity to the likes of Jackson Haightley or young up-and-coming Harry Schoenberg. Sounds like he's training the house down for the Crows, but that doesn't mean that they can't play Rory Laird alongside them. Matty Crouch has been battling a couple of niggles in the preseason as well, and Rory Laird has really made his name for himself by becoming a two-time All-Australian member in the back line, but that doesn't mean he can't transition into the midfield. And for the Crows, there's not a lot of promise going on at the moment. I do like some of the players on their list, but I do kind of rate their list among one of the worst in the league. So if they can put someone with Rory Laird's experience closer to the pill, hopefully that'll mean that they can contend a little bit more in 2021. The Geelong Cats are next. This is simple. In 2021, Geelong needs to win the flag. I've been saying this for a couple of years now. Unfortunately, Gary Ablett didn't get his perfect swan song, and we might be seeing their premiership window starting to close. Their list is littered with a lot of ageing veterans. I mean, they just went out and grabbed Isaac Smith, Sean Higgins, both of which aren't exactly spring chickens. Jeremy Cameron's got a couple more miles left in his legs, but... The window is closing for the Cats. After winning three flags between 2007 and 2011, they've, I felt like they've been in the mix every single year since, but last year was the only time they've made the grand final, and there's been a lot made about how Paddy Dangerfield keeps coming up short on the big stage. So 
I just shat all over Adelaide's list, but on the flip side, I think Geelong has one of the best lists. It is a little bit top-heavy, and a lot of those veterans will be required to do the heavy lifting. Joel Selwood, Dangerfield, as I mentioned, but they do have other up-and-comers. Jordan Clark, Cam Guthrie's not super old either. There is promise for Geelong, but I think given the clientele that they've got at the Cattery, they're going to have to maximise the premiership window right now. Speaking of dynasties, the Hawthorne Hawks are no strangers to winning flags, but they have really started to stink it up in recent times. Their 2021 goal is to reverse the clearance trend. During their three-peat between 13 and 15, the Hawks were a juggernaut in the middle of the ground. Granted, they did have champions like Jordan Lewis, Sam Mitchell, Luke Hodge, Brad Sewell were all running amok, and in those three premiership seasons, Hawthorne finished 6th, 1st and 5th for total clearances, so definitely in the top half of the league, and the year they finished 1st, they, no surprise, went on the best run in that season. So fast forward half a decade, and they're coming off a season where they ranked dead last in total clearances. 2019, you can kind of understand why they were 17th for clearances. I mean, Tommy Mitchell broke his leg in the preseason, so he didn't play a single game. Losing a Brownlow medalist is obviously going to sting you, but they didn't really have a hell of a lot of excuses last year. It felt like James Warple continued his breakout, and Jaeger O'Meara missed some time with injury, but he was still a factor, and yet Hawthorne still struggled to win the ball out of the middle, so... There's a lot of factors that need to swing their way if they're going to try and ascend up the ladder. Maybe they'll be looking for a new change of voice with Alastair Clarkson after a couple of uh, lacklustre seasons. I hate to say it because I do love Clark Owen. I think he's one of those rare coaches that's good enough to not be fired. But if Hawthorne doesn't start winning the ball at stoppages, I definitely expect his seat to get hotter. Uh, let's do one more, alright? Last one, last team alphabetically on the list, the Western Bulldogs. Their goal in 2021 is to cement themselves as the number one scoring side. They've got the targets inside 50, they definitely have the class in the midfield. Now it's time for the Bulldogs to pounce. In 2019, they actually led the league for shots on goal, and they finished fourth in 2020 in that category as well. So I only expect that to trend upwards and then finish in the top couple of teams for shots on goal in 2021. They obviously added Adam Trelaw to their midfield. They added a huge talent in Jamara Hagen to their forward line. Aaron Norton now has versatile a supporting acts with Josh Bruce. Mitch Wallace ran up forward and tried to showcase his talents as a small forward last year as well. So I think the dogs are going to be as good as advertised. I expect them to consistently hit the board, put a lot of pressure on opposing defences, and if that's the case, I can't see a version of the Bulldogs that doesn't dominate offensively in 2021. That'll do it. That's all I've got for this Sports Buy podcast episode. Like I said, I'll be back on Sunday with another one with JLo. No AFL fantasy on today's pod because I will be doing a fantasy Friday before the weekend hits as well. If you've got a question for JLo and I for Sunday, start to filter them through. I'll start collecting and collating a list of questions. Again, that Super Bowl preview will be out potentially by the time you're listening to this. So make sure you give that a squiz and check out sportsbyfry.com for other articles. But once again, thanks for listening to this podcast. Until next time, peace.